Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. Well, we are releasing this episode right before the new year, and this is the busiest time of year for most nonprofit groups as donors are rushing to get their year-end contributions in so they can meet the tax deadline. And if you happen to be listening to this in these final few days of 2021, know that there is indeed time to still get those charitable gifts in and even to open a donor advised fund. You can go to donorstrust.org and click open an account, fill out the online application, send in your gift, and you're up and running. But the new year is also a nice inflection point to look back and more importantly, to look ahead. And given that, for today's episode, we're going to do something a little different. Rather than feature uh, several different nonprofit groups, we're going to talk big picture about charitable giving and where it's going in the new year. And to do that, I am joined by Donors Trust's president and CEO, uh, my boss and friend, Lawson Bader. Lawson has a long history in the liberty-advancing nonprofit space with a long tenure at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, followed by what would have been a long tenure running the Competitive Enterprise Institute had circumstances not intervened uh, that led him ultimately to come to us at Donors Trust back in 2015. So Lawson, let's talk giving, and uh, I want to mostly focus on next year, looking ahead, but a few folks are listening, still have time to do something before the end of 2021. Is there any common question you're getting here as we race toward the end of the year? Uh, it's a good question, Peter. You get it all the time, as do our colleagues. It tends to be a, uh, a panicked statement of help. How do I do this? Followed up by, uh, wait, there's so many things you're asking me about in this application. I don't have time. Um, and that's a pretty common question we get. And what we always like to tell people is, look, the information's important, but what really is more important is the gift and the gift getting to us, especially if it's a appreciated stock or closely held stock or mutual funds where you can't completely control that process. Uh, you need to get those things to us. And what we like to tell people is get them to us before December 31st, and we'll backfill all the personal information after New Year's when things are much more calm. Um, but that is, hands down, the, the the biggest question we get this time of year. Would you agree, or do you get other ones? Yeah, really a technical question as people are rushing to get this done of, you know, on our end, the application and the gift for other nonprofits, just getting a gift in. How do I do this? How do I, you know, get this over to you? And uh, probably a good lesson to all nonprofits to make sure they have that information at the ready to be able to answer those questions. Yeah, yeah you know, the other question that we do get on the on the the grant making side is you alluded to so many nonprofits themselves should have this information, but they're on a calendar year for many of them. They're scrambling right now to sort of make budget. And that is, is why we do so many grants in December. And so another question we get from our donors is, Oh my gosh, can I make sure that this gift gets to them, you know, before the end of the year? And what we oftentimes will tell people, especially these last couple of weeks is look, we, we get a lot of requests. We may or may not get this out the door the next day or two, but what I can make sure that happens is that nonprofit knows it's coming so that if they can, if they need to book it, 
they can book it in this year. And so we're happy to do that for a lot of organizations who are relieved to know that there's a grant on the way, even if it doesn't actually arrive until the first week of January. So big picture, just how do you get it done? And to everyone who's listening with days left, make sure you do get it done. So let's pivot to looking ahead. Let's talk 2022 and, and beyond. What do you think, as people are starting to think about their philanthropy and make plans, what do you think is the most overlooked idea or concept that people forget in their philanthropy? It's a good question. Um, I think at the end of the day, they really should take their time but not procrastinate. So you be intentional without necessarily rushing. And I think for so many people that they let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So for a lot of people, they have a dollar amount in their head that they want to, they want to support something. Well, if you do, then just go with it. The problem is, you know, in philanthropy, generally speaking, um, you're placing a bet that what you're giving to, uh, not necessarily how much you are giving, is going to be worth it. And the problem with that, even though it's a good thing, is that it can freeze the decision process, especially among, ironically, some sort of high-dollar donors. You know, I laugh at conversations that I've had with some of our clients who take unbelievable risks during the day, you know, with their business activity that can affect millions and millions of dollars, but they cannot make up their mind about what to do with a $10,000 gift. So, you know, reflect a bit, but then, but then do. And it's important, especially these last 18 months, to recognize that it's not just about taking your time but not procrastinating. It's realizing that relief efforts are transactional um, activity, you know, especially this time of year. So, sure, that $100 may, in fact, be buying 100 blankets to provide a town hit by a, a tornado or something. But what I'd argue is that that's not really philanthropy. It's giving, and it's a good thing. Um, and it's being charitable, and it's being neighborly, and it's something that we do want to see in our collective society, but it's not sacrificial per se. Um, it's not giving of your true treasure to achieve something of lasting value or lasting change. You know, the joke about the, the chicken and the, and the pig, or you're having the bacon and, and eggs for breakfast, and the chicken is involved, but the pig is quite committed. That's the idea. Just be committed. Stop putzing. You know, you may make a mistake along the way because you're placing that bet, but you're going to learn something as well that will make you a, a stronger giver in the in the out years. Hey, that, that's great advice. I got an email from one of our nonprofits that we work with just a few days ago saying they had a donor who was trying to figure out a few similar charities to give to, and did you have any advice? And this is a donor who's looking to make a six, maybe even a seven-figure aggregate gift and hadn't really done the the work as you're saying of figuring out what it is he really cares about what are the organizations and you know frankly to to put my sales hat on there that is where a donor advised fund can come in handy you can park that dollar in the donor advised fund and then do exactly what you're articulating Lawson which is to take the time to be intentional forget the tax piece focus on the strategy I think that's really really good advice really sound advice so what do you think is going to be different in the charitable landscape next year? I mean, there's a, there's different laws out there. We talked about that in a few episode a few months back on the different things that are out there. Uh, there's just a different culture as we move out of the pandemic, potentially. What do you think is going to be different next year? Yeah, I think those are all um, accurate statements. Uh, first of all, I, I'd like to think that the overall generosity that we've witnessed uh, in 2020 and, and very likely 2021 is going to continue. Um, and I don't see anything that would specifically change that per se. 
But I do think in general, and you alluded to that in what you just said, there's a, there's a larger conversation brewing about the institutions of philanthropy, maybe in ways that we've not seen them before or with a greater intensity. Um, certainly, as you insinuated, the relationship between private foundations and donor revised funds you know, may be changing either through direct regulation, potential legislation. Um, this increasing politicalization of giving um, is happening. I think it's frankly going to be a little worse this next year because, as is no secret, we're entering a midterm election season, and that's going to be a national conversation. Um, and this is going to affect you know, the donor privacy piece, which has been building and building and building. But for a lot of people don't realize with the donor privacy piece is it's, it's actually a bigger issue right now at the local level, at the state level. There's, there's numerous legislators out there that are trying to pass bills that are affecting the ability of a nonprofit to act within the state. And it can be intentional. So an organization that's testifying about a potential measure or a public interest law firm, right, that's suing the local or state government over a perceived problem. Um, or it can be unintentional, you know, the women's shelter, where the chair of the board makes some comment about the importance of following issues related to women's health and economic opportunity. And all of a sudden, the governing authorities now sort of see that as lobbying and that triggers some donor disclosure requirements. It's really part of a growing trend, and I don't see any reason why it's going to de-escalate. In fact, if anything, it may escalate this next year between this idea of coercive uh, philanthropy or voluntary philanthropy. Um, it tends to come from a darker place of envy, um, political desires. It's about shaming certain donors or certain institutions from giving to causes or groups that people don't like or not giving to certain causes or groups rather than seeing your own opportunities to generate more funds or more interest in whatever that issue that matters to you. Um, you know, Arthur Brooks, a good friend of Donors Trust over the years, in his Love the Enemies book, had a great line about, you know, we can't beat someone over the head with charity. If we do, it's no longer charity. Um, but I, at the same time, philanthropy is part of the overall conversation and political and society angst over disparities in housing and hunger and education and wages and economic mobility and a lot of the emotional turbulence you know, generated by uh, racial and social equity questions. And these are influencing how corporations you know, do their charity, um, which, to my larger point, is influencing the structure and organizations of nonprofits themselves, right? Boards and governances and changing missions and Alterations that may have an effect on donor intent uh, as a charitable organization changes its DNA. You know, then lastly, something that struck me the other day that you and I have talked about, you know, we may see our first trillionaire in the next year or two, um, probably an Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. It's going to be a pretty small number of people who would fall into that category. And it's a crazy concept. Um, but what it could do is have a discouraging effect on the average donor from engaging because, you know, why? Why would I bother? You know, I mean, as you know, Peter, we, we push donors' trust and donor revised funds in general because they really are for anybody. They're not just for a trillionaire, millionaire, billionaires. It's for, it's for anybody. And I'm encouraged by the growth, you know, of donor revised funds across the, the, the entire industry these last many years. And that does give me hope for the average donor. But when you start to see those commas, I do wonder how it's going to affect the younger givers um, and those perhaps without the means. And we'll just see how that changes the entire landscape. Yeah, I worry about the same thing, not just because 
if there's too many super wealthy donors out there making super large gifts with a lot of commas, as you say, uh, that has a discouraging effect. But then you couple that with the political pressure and the, the, the news outlets calling out people making gifts that are clearly much larger than your average person might make, but could discourage that person from yeah. making a similar gift. Exactly. And so you have those two coupled together and you do, I think, have this downward pressure on your mid-level, lower-level donor who are the backbone of most charitable organizations out there. Most organizations are not getting gifts from Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and, and all those folks. So, so kind of pivoting then to the donor, you, we talked about the macro trends, but are you seeing anything in the conversations you're having? We get this question a lot, right? What are you hearing from donors? Uh, so I'm going to ask it to you. What, uh, what are you hearing from donors is in terms of or seeing in their giving pattern that they're giving to, that they're switching from? Have you seen some shifts? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we've we we certainly ourselves have experienced the the COVID shift, for lack of a better phrase. So, increasing in gifts to you know food banks, you know, job training, job retraining programs, you know, medical research, um, churches, and and other religious sorts of things. And combined in that is some of the international giving. Although I think that falls into more of that kind of relief transactional. Um, way that I that I mentioned before, so we're we're still seeing that, and I, I don't see any of that changing. Um, in in sort of increases is this larger question of education. Um, that's that's been a great disruption this last year. We, there's no secret about that, and so we're seeing grants going into either uh, alternative educational opportunities or institutions. Um, we're seeing grants going into, you know, the effects of, of online learning and remote learning and the good and the bad related thereto. You know, there are going to be a lot of dissertations written about educational data from this last, these last 18 months. Um, we're looking at the, the re- relationship between, you know, public and private schools. And this is all in the K through 12 space, not just some of the conversations about content. Um, it's also affecting the higher ed. You know, there, are, there, there seems to be continued growth in grants to colleges and universities, but something has happened this last year where the real fact that some of these endowments have dramatically increased is changing some of the pressure or changing how alumni feel about, about things. So we're seeing, to sort of bring it back to donors' trust, an interest among alumni at elite schools to refrain from making contributions to their schools until certain things occur in the area of free speech or at least um, the process by which students are learning these days. Um, I think that's an, in, that's an increasing trend that I think is going to spread to a lot of schools. Um, we're seeing also a, a bit of a downward shift in arts and cultures and humanities, which is interesting. In fact, I, I even double-checked that this was true a year or two ago, and, and this has been happening for several years. So we're seeing a decrease of 7 to 10% annually for this. And what's troubling is that those are the truly local things, right? For so many people in the country, they've, they've been local for the last year and a half. And arts and culture and humanity organizations sort of reflect the shared fabric, right? They share what the community is, what the town is. You know, you enjoy being in Lexington and being part of that community, and some of the things that you support are part of that fabric. And maybe some of this is occurring because there's been a shift of going out for entertainment and instead saying in and entertaining yourself or being entertained with what's available to you electronically. So that's a little bit of a concern. Giving to religious institutions is flat. 
um, which may reflect the downward trend that younger people have, either identifying as being religious, let alone acting on that, whether it's you're attending synagogue, mosque, or church services. We've seen that. And even more narrowly, into the, the donors of ours who are interested in the, that larger sort of freedom movement, the nonprofit policy world, there's a, there's a shift away from the D.C.-centric uh, organizations, those groups that have been in town for quite some time, and instead a reallocation to local and state groups that are uh, engaged in similar activities, but perhaps on that local level. Um, we've sort of seen that in the grants that we're making and the conversations that we're having. The questions I get from donors are not, what are the D.C. centric groups doing? It's who's really doing the best work in, and they pick a particular field. And I have to say that oftentimes the answer is the local group or an, or a public interest law firm. So that's that's shifting as well. And then I also will say within that category, um, the international bit, not just the relief that I mentioned earlier, but the policy world of, of non-U.S. groups that are also caught up in similar problems of COVID-related policies. There's an interest in, in what's happening in Lithuania and Indonesia and Croatia, you know, not just Washington, D.C. and New Jersey. So those are big picture things, little picture things that I've been seeing and hearing the last six months. Yeah, those are good. Yeah, I, I, The effectiveness piece is one I've seen as well. I mean, more and more people less interested in the organization itself, more in finding an organization that is doing the job uh, as people think about what is the outcome I want with my philanthropy versus just, oh, right. that's a nice group and right. Bob runs it and isn't that great. Well, you know, and related to that is probably an important point is, you know, giving to your kids um, is another significant shift. I mean, there's there's a new generation of philanthropists coming. We've talked about that. You know, I, I think we're going to be seeing something like $68 trillion of wealth transfer from baby boomers to their heirs over the next 10 or 15 years. That's a lot of money. And younger donors often see giving as more activity-based, right? They, they want to actually volunteer. They want to be more engaged in advocacy, whatever it is. They want to be doing peer-to-peer -peer fundraising, which is changing how money is raised, especially when you've had fewer and fewer in-person activities. Um, and so the technologies that sort of foster community our interests of those. But that that's another trend that I think is going to put pressure in the kinds of organizations that may appeal to a new generation of funders may not be the same ones that we've seen for the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Um, and that's something to be cognizant of if you run uh, a nonprofit organization is to be, to be aware of that. I mean, it's something that's been important to you with the Novus work that you helped start at, at Donors Trust has been trying to capture some of that as well. Right. We see those younger donors, and the data bears this out, that they are really keen on that effectiveness metric. They want to make sure that they understand the organization's mission and that the organization is actually achieving the mission. They're, they're far less relational. It's far less, well, that organization sounds like it should be doing something good, so we'll just help it get going. They want to see the results. And, yeah. uh, and, and they're willing to do it in, in these different ways, right? You mentioned the crowdfunding and GoFundMe, and they don't, they're not looking for a tax deduction. Heck, the tax cuts in 2017 took away the tax deduction right. for a lot of them, but they're still giving and they're still a generous generation, which I think is really encouraging, but nonprofits in particular need to know that looks different now. Yeah. Well, you see younger folks coming to us, you know, the last couple of years, you see an increase in donors across the board, you know, coming to us uh, in ways that they had not before. Um, and, you know, why do you see why do you see that happening? I get to ask you a question now. You don't have to always have to talk to me. So, Mr. Podcast Man, 
I I do think you, one of the things I'm, I've been excited about on the younger side and really across the board, I think, is that there's more people seeking out places, either organizations or donor advice funds or anything that really share their principles a bit more. Uh, maybe that's a bad thing. One could argue it's a bad thing because it means we're continuing to polarize more around political issues or issues of ideology than than making our neighborhoods better, et cetera. But I don't think that's quite it. I think people want to know that they're not going to get belittled for holding certain ideas and want to align their giving in that way and try to find people who are who are doing that in their communities and broader. But that principled giving, we're seeing a lot of new accounts at Donors Trust coming to us because they were looking for that principled alternative. They understand what a donor advisement is. Right. Now they want right. somebody who shares their, their mission. And I think that that, nonprofits across the board, the ones that really articulate that mission and can find the people who are really teed into it are going to do a lot better going forward. That's right. We spend less time, I think, talking about the mechanics of a donor advised fund the way we maybe did when I first came 2015. I mean, there's always going to be somebody who doesn't quite get it. That's fine. But it's no longer the how do we operate? It's why do we operate? And why are we going to be different than somebody else who operates mechanically the same thing? That's uh, that's that's important to, do, to have that distinction. But it also shows me that more and more people understand what a donor advice fund is. So Right, right. So what do you foresee for donors' trust itself as we move into the next year? Ah, the crystal ball question, yes. Well, first of all, I, I, I see you still here, so you have a job, so that's important. Thank you, I that, really appreciate I, that. It's always I'm nice. I'm sure our listeners food. will be thrilled. I, I figure that they'll be yelling at me if we, if we changed it, which is fine. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we we are and have been uh, and are becoming a much more robust organization. Um, we will always retain our unique mission to the point we just made about how we're different from other DAF providers. Um, we're focused really on the philanthropic services, not merely the transactional services that come with the donor advice fund. So we are already and shall be providing much more advice, strategic guidance when it comes to things of estate planning and tax planning and the kinds of organizations that may align with your mission. I think this reflects more and more clients who are who are experiencing either that wealth transfer or that, that sudden liquidity event or finally, for whatever reason, pulling the trigger on establishing the account. And now they want to take that time to reflect it. And so part of the benefit of working with us is you're going to get our advice. If you don't want our advice, we won't give it to you. But but we are here to be to be helpful. And so we are more robust in doing that. We're also going to be spending more of our activity because of the demand in ensuring international giving is occurring. It's a whole different conversation on, on how and why it's regulatorily difficult sometimes for foundations to be giving to non-U.S. groups. But that's something that's important to us. So we are facilitating that uh, with greater frequency. We are still continuing to see increases in being fiscal sponsors for groups, um, as is always part of a larger freedom movement of organizations. People have a creative idea for something. They've got a donor, and they need to start it. When they can, help, We can be the umbrella for them, so we're doing much more of that. Um, we're really going to make a, a conscious effort to work more explicitly with the financial advisor world that's out there. You know, These are the people who are working day-to-day with clients um, who, uh, again, understand the donor advised fund. They understand some of the tax reasons. 
but they've got a client when they're making a recommendation for a DAF account that they should know about us. If they've got somebody who already is a certain like-minded individual, we need to be on their radar. That's a growing opportunity for us. We've already had some benefit uh, of, of some recommendations this year, so we'll be expanding to that uh, effort. And really emphasizing that we are an alternative to a private foundation. As so many people are thinking about creating a multi-year legacy of giving, it's just cheaper and easier and quicker, and we can provide that advice uh, than having a, a, a foundation. So that's something that we're going to emphasize a lot more. And as has been the case this year and as is necessary, we'll be continuing to constantly upgrade and improve our security, our technology applications to make it easier for our clients to be working online to protect their privacy and their security, but always able to be a friendly voice and face in a phone call and an email um, as needed. So at the end of the day, you know, we're just, we're not we're not a little a little organization anymore. You know, we've got well over a billion dollars in assets. We have had a significant growth in, in new accounts this year, and that's that's really due to your work and, and that of your colleagues. And now the time is to expand on that and to continue to play the important role that we do, not just in the larger freedom movement, but for all U.S.-based and non-U.S.-based charities that are trying to address a problem without asking government to grow in scope or scale. And it's important that we encourage that. I think it's been one of the more exciting pivots we've made in the time that I've been here of shifting the organization from just thinking of itself as a donor advised fund that works with some nonprofits to really being a community foundation and really taking these ideas out there, being a partner for the groups that are out there advancing these ideas, as you say, and trying to really put them over over the hill and then get them stronger across the country. Yep. As we like to tell everybody, uh, you know, our growth benefits everybody. Uh, it's not about donors trust per se. It's about where those monies will be headed and why they're headed there and the sequestration of those funds to make sure they do go to organizations that align with the intent of our, our account holders and their successor advisors. So that's exciting. This is an exciting vision, you know, 20 some odd years ago when Whitney and Kim created it. And it's nice to see the, the level we've reached and, and the opportunities that we have to increase that level even further. So, Still plenty of opportunities. Well, thank you, Lawson. I know all of us are excited about a strong finish to 2021, maybe getting a uh, little bit of rest and then watching what happens in 2022. To everyone listening, thank you not just for joining us today, but for dropping in throughout these first eight episodes of the Giving Ventures podcast. I'm always interested in your feedback, which you can send to tellmemore at donorstrust.org. And the feedback we've received so far has been very encouraging, so I appreciate that. We will be back in the new year with episodes on a wide range of topics from new approaches in higher education to groups that engage young professionals in the ideas of liberty, ways we're going to improve our cities, and efforts to reignite the teaching of civics. I can't wait to share all of these groups and concepts with you. Uh, so go ahead and subscribe if you haven't already or go to donorstrust.org podcast so you can sign up to get an email every time we release a new show. In the meantime, we wish you a very happy new year and let's talk more soon. Thank you.